Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Michael Mahoney. He is a member of Rice Lab, the International Computer Science Institute, and the Department of Statistics, all located at UC Berkeley. He is a physicist by training, but on the application side of data analysis, he has contributed to systems used for internet and social media analysis, social network analysis, as well as many, many applications in the physical and life sciences. Most importantly, recently he has been working on deep neural networks, specifically developing both theoretical methods and practical diagnostic tools that should be helpful to practitioners who use deep learning. So Mike is going to be part of a very strong slate of speakers at our upcoming Artificial Intelligence Conference in London where he'll be talking about his work on uh, deep learning. But we also have Marta Kiewatowska of the University of Oxford. She is one of the world's leading experts on AI reliability and safety. Rafti Andrea of ETH in Zurich, who among many things was the co-founder of Kiva Systems, which is now operating as Amazon Robotics. And we also have Kim Hazelwood, who manages a large engineering team at Facebook, and she will be speaking on large-scale machine learning at Facebook. So I hope to see you in London, and uh, you can get to meet Mike Mahoney there in person. I hope you enjoy this episode. Mike Mahoney, who is a member of Rice Lab, the International Computer Science Institute, and the Department of Statistics, all at UC Berkeley. Welcome to the data show. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. By the way, before we dive in, uh, maybe in a sentence or two for those listeners who are not familiar, so many of the listeners are already familiar with Rice Lab, but what exactly is the International Computer Science Institute at Berkeley? Is it part of Berkeley itself? Is it officially part of UC Berkeley? So it's not officially part of UC Berkeley. ICSI, or the International Computer Science Institute, a separate nonprofit um, research institute. It's just off campus right near the BART station, but it has a lot of informal and formal connections with, with UC Berkeley. So what is the mission? Kind of just more fundamental research, basic research, or what exactly is the mission? Yeah, the mission is basically fundamental research. There's people there with a range of interests, some of which are more applied, and, and they you know, take it in the directions they want. But the, it's the basic mission of the institute's fundamental research, and it complements a lot of the stuff that's going on campus at, at the main campus UC Berkeley. So uh, today we're going to talk about some of the things you and your collaborators are doing in the area of neural networks. But before we do so, I think let's talk a little bit about your background prior to jumping into neural nets. So you did a lot of work in uh, matrices, graphs, optimization, but mostly a lot of it, Mike, your, your work has always focused on large-scale applications, right? So that's correct. I mean, my dissertation was actually in, in statistical physics, and so the recent work in neural networks was revisiting some of those ideas. But it was computational statistical mechanics, so there was a heavy dose of computation, but also 
really using the the techniques to make very sort of practical predictions like you do in a lot of areas of science. And so after that, I switched basically to theoretical computer science and then large-scale statistical data analysis. And so a lot of the work had to do with sort of randomized linear algebra, which uses randomness. So randomness is an interesting thing because computer scientists often view it as an algorithmic resource to speed up a computation, but statisticians typically view it as a property of, of noise in the data. And so randomized linear algebra tries to develop better algorithms for a range of problems. And so that could mean better and sort of worst-case analysis or better statistical properties or better in terms of implementation. So, for example, we can do um, PCA in, in Alchemist, which is something that interfaces Spark to MPI on matrices um, that are scores of, uh, of terabytes. And so that was work that we did a couple of years ago. So a lot of work in randomized linear algebra. And I spent a few years at Yahoo, and that led to a long line of work on basically analyzing the structure of social and information networks. And so there's a range of problems having to do with finding clusters or doing inference or making predictions on social networks. And um, so a range of very practical problems, but it also led to a range of very sort of interesting technical questions because a lot of social and information networks have um, good small-scale structure, but not good large-scale structure, and that creates a lot of problems. So we did a lot of work there, and um, in those areas, large means different things to different people. For some people, 100,000 nodes is large. For some people, 100 million is large. And for some people, 100 billion is large. And so we've observed that a lot of sort of the principles are similar between those scales, but certainly they manifest themselves in different ways because the implementations are very different. And we've also done a lot of work on sort of stochastic optimization. So first order is stochastic gradient descent. Second order is subsample Newton's methods. And there, there's also interesting differences sort of in the theory practice gap, right? Theory says certain things, but the way these things are used in, in particular um, in large-scale machine learning applications is, is rather different. And so we've looked at a lot of stuff um, in that space also. For years, and I don't know if you're still doing it, for years you ran a, a highly regarded conference that started when you were still at Stanford and, and you moved to Berkeley. So this was, yeah, so this is the uh, workshop MMDS, Modern Massive Data Sets. This was, we started this in, well, we started in 2005, but we ran it every other year starting in 2006. And in a sense, it was a meeting designed to address exactly that interface, you know, address the sort of foundations of data from the theoretical computer science and theoretical statistics and applied math perspective, but really to, to be sort of very useful and practical. And so we ran that every other year starting in about uh, 2006. And um, I think it raised a lot of interesting academic questions that were interesting in terms of pushing the area forward, but also very, very practical problems. And so we'd regularly have, you know, 300 people come to these meetings and uh, a good fraction of them were, were industry people who sort of liked to listen to the theory, but would pick out things that they thought was particularly useful. So we, we navigated the interface there pretty cleanly also. And actually, I think that uh, at least uh, the early editions of that workshop, when you posted videos on YouTube, I was struck by actually how many industry speakers you had. So we tried to get a lot of industry speakers. So this this grew out of my time while I was at Yahoo, when it was clear that there was a real arbitrage point between people who were at industry and doing computation at scale and, and could ask the questions and what was going on at university. And so we really tried to get people at industry who, even if they didn't have sort of the cycles in, in their day job, maybe to push out papers, were really doing sort of cutting edge work and could, could impedance match or could talk to academics and vice versa. And so, you know, highlighting the, the sort of practical problems and, and solutions that, um, that people would sort of address in industry. So we really tried to get a good fraction of industry people there as sort of one, a motivation and two, to feedback academic ideas to them. So before we uh, talk about neural nets, actually a couple of other things 
as part of your role in Berkeley, since you interface with so many people. So the first is kind of this uh, Foundations of Data Analysis Institute that you're director of. And then secondly, one of the things that I've noticed with your work is you also work with the people in the national lab. So the people in the MPI or HPC world. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on at Berkeley in, in the data space. And um, and so people are approaching this problem, I think, from maybe basically many different perspectives. So you didn't mention the Simons Institute, but I was involved with running the first program oh, um, right. yeah. in fall of 2013. And then there was a follow-up program last fall, 2018, on foundations of, of data, or theory of big data, I think was the names of one of the programs, where people addressed really very sort of um, very fairly theoretical questions, but motivated by these sort of problems. Um, you mentioned the national labs, in particular, um, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. That's if, if you're on campus at Berkeley, that's just up the hill. And um, they have a lot of nice two things. One, a lot of nice problems, in particular scientific problems, where it's, whether it's astronomy or, or neuroscientific or biological. And, um, and they also have a lot of computation. And, and from the perspective of maybe industry or foundations of data, that's nice because the, the problems that you encounter in, in various scientific areas like that are very different than you see in industry. I mean, what you know about the data, what you can interpret, you know, you don't want click-through rates. You might want to get answers for causality or something. So it's a very different data point in the, in the data space and also in implementations. There are certain things that are just obvious when you do it on a supercomputer that you should do that are basically the opposite of what you think is obvious that you should do in a distributed data center. And so there's a range of interesting and practical and challenging problems in that space. So I mentioned Spark and Alchemist a little bit back, and so that grew out of that. That was with collaborators at Cray and at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, where we developed this interface between Spark and MPI. And so that's been very fruitful. And you mentioned the Foundations of Data Analysis Institute. This was something that grew out of, I think, MMDS, but is part of a larger project academics, as you know, try and get funding from various places. And one of the places is the National Science Foundation. And one of the challenges there, in the same way as academic hiring between different departments can be challenging, the NSF tries to fund between different areas, and that can be challenging. So in particular, um, size is CISE is the main directorate that funds computer science. And uh, DMS is, is the main directorate that funds statistics and, and applied math. And um, I and Petros Trinaeus and some others sort of would send a proposal to one and they'd say, oh, great proposal, send it to the other because, you know, it's we, we you know it's more relevant there. And of course, then would send it to the other and they'd say, go back and send it to the one. And so um, Trinaeus was at the NSF for, for a few years. And around that time, he helped to get started something that evolved into what's called tripods. So tripods is uh, transdisciplinary foundations of, of data, basically. And um, we ran a workshop and put together a white paper and so on. And this was part of a broader effort at the NSF in terms of a range of things going on in the data space. And so HDR is harnessing the data revolution and convergence. These are some of the buzzwords that maybe some of your, your listeners are familiar with. And so the initial effort as part of HDR was the original tripods program, and that was designed to fund on the order of 10 institutes on the foundations of data. And there was a three-year ramp, and then that was going to condense down to on the order of, of maybe three larger-scale institutes. And so one of the initial phase one institutes that was put together was FODA, the Foundations of Data Analysis Institute at, at UC Berkeley, and that's with Fernando Perez and Peter Bartlett and Mike Jordan and Bin Yu. And one of the things we're trying to do is address a lot of these themes I've been mentioning, um, really at the foundations of data, which involve various sort of foundational and theoretical questions, but touching in a very non-trivial way 
real applications and implementations. Let's now jump into your work in neural networks. One of the first things I want to cover is your work with Kurt and that group around, I guess, Hawk, which is the Hessian aware quantization of neural networks. So at a high level, what is the problem that Hawk is trying to address? And then secondly, what makes Hawk different from the other approaches that people may have heard of, like SqueezeNet and things like that? Sure. I mean, so Hawk is um, an acronym. It's Hessian aware quantization. And as you know, there's there's interest in quantizing or, or compressing or distilling, you know, making neural networks um, smaller, maybe to fit on a cell phone or something. And, and um, so a particular version of that is that you want to quantize different layers. And so that was the uh, question we addressed in Hawk. So um, roughly, you have a large neural network, and you want to quantize uh, different uh, so, layers. So, Mike, uh, for the uh, listeners who are not experts in this field, so what is quantization? So, um, I mean, imagine you have an, a neural network with some number of layers. It's 10 layers. It's 100 layers. And in the computer, each one may be represented as, as 32 bits. And so that full 32 bits may not be necessary. You know, you may be able to get away with 16. You may be able to get away with 8 or 4 or 2. And so this is a question about a model because this information is sort of a representation of a model, but it also clearly has um, latency and throughput consequences. And if you want to put something on a device where there's a significant memory constraint, you may want to minimize unnecessary bits in that sense. And so the question there is, can I quantize certain layers? And so so represent them with fewer bits. And so what was the state of the art or what were people doing before that? Yeah, I mean, there's a range of things people were doing before that. And I think this is sort of fairly representative, maybe, for the whole neural network space, that it's a heavily maybe engineered business. And they do, a lot of the methods do pretty well, but within sort of a certain range. But then when they start not to do well, it's hard to know why. And maybe it's because it's not good design principles in terms of of how the models perform. Um, There may be design principles in terms of the hardware and the architecture, but there's not good sort of statistical design principles for maybe how the networks perform. And so from that perspective, or from the foundational perspective or methodological perspective, people were doing very reasonable, you know, smart engineering solutions that weren't sort of so principled or fully understood. And so we tried to come up with something that was maybe a little bit more principled in terms of how to do that. And so um, essentially what we tried to do was to look at second order information having to do with the Hessian. So if you think of an optimization problem, there's derivatives, which is sort of how you would maybe go downhill. And then the second derivatives, which says captures curvature information. And one of the things about this curvature information is it can tell you about sensitive directions. You know, it's like it can be used statistically as a sensitivity metric. And so we computed eigenvalues of Hessians of different layers to construct a sensitivity metric in order to come up with a rule for one, how many layers, you know, the, the order in which we should quantize layers, and also in current work that's, that's ongoing, there's going to be a Hawk V2 coming out, how aggressively to quantize each layer. And so we're trying to ask a, a similar sort of question, but, but have it be a little bit more principled in terms of outlier metrics and regression diagnostics and tools from robust regression. So for uh, people who might be interested in exploring Hawk further, so based on the work of yourself and your collaborators, uh, when and in what settings have you kind of shown or validated that Hawk really shines or, or works? So, what kind? So, are there specific known architectures where you use Hawk? Yeah, I mean, there's any any simple summary um, will oversimplify certain things, but roughly the the results we currently have. There's a lot of examples, in particular in computer vision, which is a motivating application for a lot of these 
where there's a very strong non-uniformity structure over different layers. And so there's been a couple different applications in the computer vision space where that works. For example, if you want to do classification, a little bit more challenging problem might be object detection. And so there, there's some additional subtleties, and that's ongoing work in progress. One thing we've seen is that for a lot of natural language architectures, which maybe don't have convolutional layers, but are have much larger but fully connected layers, the outlier score, this non-uniformity metric, is is more uniform. It, it still has is is, is non-uniform. So there are outlying directions, but it may be you know a factor of two or three between the largest and smallest, as opposed to a factor of ten or a hundred. And so um, ongoing work there is to try and do more refined quantization on those models and understand is that really the question of the models being more saturated and so just less compressible, or, or is there better ways that we could have a, have a better outlier metric to compress them? So to put Hawk in context, so there was prior work, right? So with uh, Kurt, Song Han, and, and people uh, around the Stanford and Berkeley. So how does Hawk compare with kind of the prior state-of-the-art or compressing neural networks? So I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but it roughly what we had is we wanted to get Compression on the order of, of 10 or 50, roughly. And for most of those, we're comparable or slightly worse in terms of, of the quality metric. And so there's a trade-off point, and, and um, there's, a, there's essentially a, a Pareto sort of surface. And so um, we, we tend to be on the order of 10 or 50 smaller, but similar or slightly worse in terms of prediction quality. It's interesting when you mentioned the Hessian second-order information, so someone who comes from kind of the applied math, PDE world, obviously Hessians are useful. So it's, do you think that this is a direction that the rest of the neural network community will pursue? So there's a lot of work on looking at Hessians. And I think certainly in a range of, for a range of problems, there will be a lift provided by Hessians. The, the way it's used in a lot of scientific computing applications or applied math applications like you're talking about, it's oftentimes used for better solvers. And so I want to use a second order method rather than um, simply plugging in a second-order method tends not to do so well. There's a method called KFAC. There's, there's a range of subsample Newton methods. And um, there's a range of papers that say it's slightly better and worse. So I, I think the final words to be said on, on those directions. We actually have some results on that. But for Hawk was a nice example because I think it's the tip of a larger iceberg on the way second-order methods can be used. Because there we went beyond just first-order gradient methods. Second-order methods not just for improved training, but for sort of extracting insight from a network and doing some other tasks. Um, extracting insight on which layers are more sensitive and using that for quantization. We have some work on adversarial training, or rather than following just a gradient direction and maybe quantizing it, use a second order direction and, and have improved results there. What I'd say is that rather than sort of naively applying a second order method sort of off the shelf, Ask yourself, what are the problems people are encountering these days? You know, they're exploding and vanishing gradients and um, latency and throughput at training or test time. Second order methods sort of historically were designed to address exactly these problems. I mean, that doesn't mean that the way the solution was instantiated in applied math a generation ago is exactly the way the solution will be instantiated currently in machine learning type problems. But they were designed to address exactly the same problems. And so I think there's a range of examples like Hawk um, where, where they could improve over state of the art. So there's a second direction research area that you're pursuing with some other collaborators, including Charles Martin with Calculation Consulting, where you folks are trying to understand why deep learning works and also develop some practical theory and tools that will help practitioners. So I think one of the things that you folks are trying to 
develop is an open source diagnostic tool for some of these state of the art neural networks. So describe uh, this re- research direction and uh, some of the tools you folks are trying to build. Sure. I mean, this complements some of the stuff we were just talking about, actually, um, and touches on similar themes, but the specifics are, are quite different. So as you mentioned, this is joint work with Charles Martin at Calculation Consulting, in, which, is, which is a boutique consulting shop in, in San Francisco. And he and I got to know each other. We had similar backgrounds, and we got to know each other a few years ago and, and talking as to what might be useful theory to guide very practical uh, direction. So he's being an industry consultant interested in very practical questions. And I was frustrated because of a lot of the theory. There was a fairly strong theory practice gap. And so we um, began a line of work that I can tell you about. One of the sort of leading order questions we wanted to address is sort of why these networks work and, and um, what does that even mean? And so one of the things that struck us is just the general methodology that people use in terms of trying to use statistical learning theory like PAC and VC or, or, or the acronyms for, for the theory does not really provide the same type of guidance that a practical engineer would use to say to build a bridge. I mean, if you build a bridge, you don't solve the Schrodinger equation of quantum mechanics or Einstein's equation of general relativity. You come up with effective theories that make quantitative predictions. And so that sort of doesn't exist in this area. And so the flip side to that is we wanted to ask a why question, like why deep learning works and how you can use it to come up with a practical theory. And in that sense, sort of science has a well-defined methodology for asking why questions, namely you sort of go look at the world, you measure stuff, you do something re- reproducible and you form a hypothesis and you um, test that hypothesis. And so we have a number of things, but the sort of hello world version is we wanted to go look at the world, and it's challenging to be reproducible when you do training. And I think a, a popular thing for a lot of academic and industrial researchers is to train models. And training involves lots of parameters and hyperparameters, and you need to use this version of the code and that version that's obsolete and degraded you know, by next year. And so we just said, let's go measure stuff in the world. So this is analogous to looking at this, the properties of the Internet or the web or to look at the properties of large social and information networks like I told you we did in the past. And so we wanted to look at state-of-the-art models. And so we went out and looked at a range of state-of-the-art models, um, Inception, AlexNet, things like this, and just said, what are their properties? And measured a range of properties. And we have a tool that you can use to measure it. it the tool is called Weight Watcher because we're watching weight matrices. So you can pip install Weight Watcher and reproduce some of these results. And I think the, um, the Hello World result we have here is there's a lot of work where people assume you know, that the matrices are, the weight matrices are random or have some other assumption like that. And that's an empirical question you can test, are they? And when I say are they, I don't mean could you come up with some funny configuration where you show something. I mean, for state-of-the-art models that people push out the door and that are state-of-the-art by computer vision and natural language tests, is that true? And the short answer is no. If, if you look at models that are 20 years old, you know, state-of-the-art, Lynette may be from 20 years ago, a model like that exhibits one class of properties, essentially a spike covariance model in statistics. And everything basically since 2012 or 2013, AlexNet, Inception, GoogleNet, BGG, the ResNet series, behaves qualitatively differently. And so we observed that um, the essentially the eigenvalue distribution of these models has heavy-tailed properties, and that has very significant implications. When you talk about the, the challenges facing researchers, which includes reproducibility, kind of neural architecture, type of parameter training. That's not something you, in the first step of your work with 
Charles is not something that you're directly addressing. It sounds like you're more focused on here are some amazing proven architectures. Let's build tools to understand how they work. And if we understand how they work, then maybe this will help guide future neural architecture selection. Is that kind of the logic? Correct. No, I think that's a fair description. I mean, to understand the results initially, let's just say we can't do that and we don't want to do that because training is expensive, because it's hard to reproduce and so on. And in particular, the work with Charles that we've been looking at so far is um, measuring the property of -of state-of-the-art models and trying to understand them. I mean, there's limitations with this approach, of course, right? One limitation is that no one publishes bad models. And so this is a little bit analogous to a well-known problem in statistics. You know, I I want to run a drug trial. I run a a drug. I give half the patients um, a placebo and half the patients a drug. And the drug works to some level of quality and some number of patients are alive a year later. And so you talk to them about their experiences. Of course, you can't talk to the patients who didn't survive. And so there's a selection bias. And so we're looking at an analogous selection bias. There's certain types of models in computer vision or natural language processing that get pushed out and viewed as state of the art. And so you could, there, Intel has publicly available distilled models. There's other sorts of models that are pushed out. And so these are state of the art by some measure. And so we wanted to ask, what do these things look like? So there's that work with that Amit Stallwalker, Ben Rex, and these guys did on hyperparameter tuning, hyperband, and things like this, where basically, you know, they go through the hyperparameter search space, but then they have this notion of, for some selection of hyperparameters, we know early on in the training process, this isn't going to work out, so we abandon this and we just go choose some, or... Uh, turn the knobs again and search in another direction. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of work along this line. And I, I think the question, I guess, I, I, what we're doing here complements that. It's not different. It complements it. I mean, I, I think the question is, where do you spend you know, the mental effort and the mental cycles? I mean, part of the reason we said, let's assume, even though, as I said, we did some training and, and some other things, let's pretend we can't, is we wanted to understand as well as possible what's going on with pre-trained state-of-the-art models. And we or others could feed it into those sort of pipelines. I think one of the things you know we've learned is that in this is that the properties of pre-trained models are very different than had you trained it to noise, which people tend not to do. And this will have implications for things like hyperparameter search. So, for example, there may be a rugged sort of convexity that arises, even though these things are nominally non-convex. I mean, both now and a generation ago, there's a lot of talk about how these sort of models are very not convex. And convexity is a mathematical notion of, of sort of niceness for optimization problems. But as a practical matter, and, and, and so theoretically, you may get stuck in local minima and saddles and other things. If you ask a practitioner, they just say, this is never a problem. We don't get stuck at, at, at minima, you know, local minima. And so why is that? And so I think a finer scale understanding of that and, and how pre-trained models might have certain metrics that you can measure to, to characterize that could, in a, in a complementary way, guide hyperparameter search. Because if you view these things as just a pathologically non-convex problems and naively search over hyperparameter grid, clearly that's not going to work. And I think people are starting to see that. And some of the work you mentioned is pointing in that direction. So just to Weight Watcher, lets me understand what are some of the practical implications of the tool Weight Watcher. So you describe it as a diagnostic tool. So... It's telling me something. So based on the things it's telling me, what are some of the decisions or choices that change for me once I read the output? Well, right now, it's a tool that allows you to analyze things, including weight matrices. 
Um, how you'd use them is is a question of how you'd use them in a pipeline. And so I think you're asking the latter, but it's important to understand the Weight Watcher tool currently measures several things, but there's a lot of other things one could measure. And so given what we have now, I think we can ask certain questions and given things that we're putting into the tool, we can ask a range of other questions, um, such as, you know, what, which layers may be most important in terms of quantizing or distilling? Um, could I come up with a better metric for, for something? Uh, one question we're asked a lot is, so we have a, an extension of the basic sort of heavy-tailed phenomena where we can come up with a capacity metric to predict the trends in generalization accuracy for state-of-the-art models. And so there's no theory to that says how this will perform. Um, there's theory to provide bounds, and that, that theory has been evaluated on small trained and, and retrained models. But prior to what we did, no one asked the question, can I come up with a capacity metric and, and can I evaluate it on large-scale pre-trained models? So the weight norm, um, an average of weight norms in different layers, does a reasonably good job. Um, we were actually able to come up with an improvement, which is a, a weighted sum of power law metrics, power law exponents, where the weight depends on the spectral norm of the layers. And so, you know, larger ones are relatively more important. And so this, we teased out of Weight Watchers. Right now, it's not a press the big green button sort of thing, right? It, it, we, you have to look at the weight matrices. You need to understand some subtleties, and then you, you can come up with this metric. And so that's an example of something that uh, one could do. There's a range of other questions that We've been asked some of which you've alluded to and some of which, you know, we, we could ask, you know, are earlier layers more robust between two different types of classes of data sets that are viewed to be sort of similar, but where there might be some sort of distributional shift. And, um, and if that's not true for later layers, where should you perform the cut? Um, so there's a range of sort of questions like that that one could use. Yeah, there's a few actual uh, practical takeaways right away. So the first one that you alluded to is the whole uh, implications for quantization and being more smart about which layers to concentrate on. And then this notion of capacity, I guess, basically having an understanding if the model is under-trained. I'm not sure if that's actually uh, what you mean by capacity. If the model is under-trained. Yeah, it's exact, exactly this, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. capacity is this machine learning notion about how it generalizes, but in, in the neural network space, the question people ask basically is, is the model over-trained or under-trained, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Finally, uh, do you think, Mike, a tool like this will, if you understand the architecture at a more precise level, maybe you will know what types of adversarial examples are vulnerable? Yeah, so that's a good question. That's something else we've uh, looked at. And uh, um, I suspect the answer is yes. We've seen some evidence for that, but I think it's, it's a slightly finer scale question than what we've looked at so far. The hello world for weight watchers is look at weight matrices and look at the global eigenvalue distribution of weight matrices. And as I said, what we saw is that the eigenvalues exhibit this heavy-tailed or power law structure. Um, for adversarial examples, sometimes you see that in, in a global metric like that. In other cases, you might have to look at a more fine-scale metric. And so eigenvectors and how eigenvectors localize and how that information may be correlated between different layers. So there's a couple different types of adversarial example settings. One could be... Um, where you know an adversarial example is presented in the world. One could be where I'm a, a bad guy training the model, and I put a few adversarial examples into the training so that when I release the model, it exhibits certain properties, sort of these backdoor attacks. And so we have some results there. And one of the interesting things we've seen that sort of bridges the gap between the Weight Watcher work, where we're looking at the large-scale structure of the weight matrices, which sort of has implications that there may be a rugged convexity to the penalty landscape, 
But that's a very global statement, a large-scale statement. And the work before with, with Hawk, when you're using Hessians, which are much finer-scale information, is you know we observe that if you fold adversarial examples into the training process itself, and now I don't want to be sensitive or insensitive to adversaries, I just fold it into the training process, that actually tends to smooth out the landscape. We have a lot of examples where that smooths out the penalty surface or the landscape, meaning that second-order methods may be more more applicable, meaning that you you may be somewhat less sensitive to adversarial examples because there's fewer little corners to get uh, stuck in. So we have a lot of initial results there, and I think there's a bunch of interesting directions in the uh, backdoor attack in the adversarial space that these techniques will have implications for and applications to. So it seems like, Mike, there's kind of a couple of trends that are misaligned. The first is obviously uh, IoT, 5G means more and more AI and uh, deep learning models will be pushed out to the edge, right? Because there's a lot of going to be smart devices out there on the edge. On the other hand, the models are getting bigger and bigger. Some of these new pre-trained language models are immense. So it seems like any kind of tool that allows people to understand what's happening with a model is going to be beneficial moving forward. Yeah, that's certainly our hope. I mean, back to the analogy with the bridge. If you wanted to build a model and you wanted to understand how the model performs on training and test data, but also when there's a distributional shift. I mean, if you put a model in in a car, you're going to see in a self-driving car, you're going to see a different thing tomorrow. So this isn't just a question of presenting ads to people, right? You're going to see a distributional shift. And so can you characterize that? Can we understand? And as an engineering principle, you wouldn't build a bridge by appealing to first principles of quantum mechanics. You would say, I'm going to develop an effective theory, and this is how it performs. And I want a metric that works in a lot of cases, and I want a metric that fails. I want a metric that breaks. Because if, I have, if, I, if I'm measuring something and it, it breaks, it gets large, and I know that that's a bad thing, that's a signature for failure. And, and having a signature for failure was, is a very valuable thing in a lot of these large-scale engineering systems. And so we're hoping that some of these tools could feed into exactly that. Yeah, it seems like this feeds into kind of this larger need for better tools for QA and testing, right? So certainly, that's a little bit less, I don't know what the word is, glamorous than maybe a generalization bound or being marginally better on prediction quality at some very, very, very large-scale training. But I think beyond just a very small number of companies, you know, the 99% use case is exactly that. And so we saw that, you know, years ago when people used kernel methods, we saw that before. That was a theme in a lot of the MMDS meetings, you know, understanding what's going on in the data and sort of using it sort of in an interactive sense where I can do interactive analytics to understand what's going on and feedback. back. That's a very statistical or scientific type question. And so that's what we're trying to do, because I think a lot of the people that are going to be users of a lot of these big data and AI tools are going to be those sorts of people. Yeah, I mean, so there's going to be a class of people, frankly, Mike, that are not going to be experts in the developing, uh, designing of architectures. They're just going to be users. So they're going to take these known architectures and start using them. So we need tools for people who are not going to be at the bleeding edge of designing neural networks, right? So they're more practitioners. Actually, what one of the things you, you and Charles should consider is make this add like a visualization layer to the tool, right? So that's something that's on the um, list of things to do. There's always too many things on the list of things to do, but that's one of the things that's on the list of things to do because some of the people that have used this thinks that this is about fitting power laws or something, and, and, and power laws is a diagnostic, but it's a fairly finicky diagnostic, and having a way to visualize and get a more intuitive sense of when things work and when things break at the large scale or at different layers, I think is really a pain point for a lot of people. 
So what's next for you generally? So continue down deep learning. Now you're a convert. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. I mean, in a couple ways, it raises a lot of foundational questions. And in particular, back to what you were saying, you know, with the early ideas from the MMDS meeting, I mean, it raises questions about a very practical theory. It also raises questions, you know, I had done some work with an applied math focus bent to theory of algorithms and large scale statistical data analysis. And if you're honest, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't need to worry about that so much because that wasn't the pain point. You just move the bits around and apply any model. And so doing very um, fine scale computational math, that's really at, at the forefront. And so it's a nice area to push back a lot of those foundational questions. Clearly, it's a very practical area. People are using it for a range of reasons. So we're looking at a couple um, directions in this space, but also more generally in terms of questions about large-scale optimization. There's some recent results we have on large-scale randomized uh, linear algebra, statistical aspects of some of these algorithms, and just sort of very practical solutions. So we put up something called the Jump Relu, for example, recently, maybe uh, four or five, three or four months ago on the archive, which basically involves retrofitting a model by zeroing out some entries. And so this is the sort of thing some academics and reviewers have said, oh, this isn't so interesting, it's too trivial. And every um, applied person I've you know, talked to say, wow, this is fabulous. It's a very nice, practical solution. And so you know, pushing back in a couple directions along that and along coupling the machine learning methodology with scientific problems. You know, How do you couple with domain knowledge in a, in a stronger way? So you have some results there. So there's a range of things we're looking at in that general space. And so you're also a member of Rice Lab, one of the couple of the areas that they're uh, pushing towards are uh, what reinforcement learning, privacy preserving, uh, analytics, competitive learning. And then actually, I'm excited about this whole new direction around program synthesis as well. So are you uh, working on any of these areas using Ray or whatever? So we have a an algorithm that um, we did previously that we're, we're um, implementing in Ray. So we're looking at that. Some of the RL questions we've started to adopt sort of a similar approach whereby we say, you know, I want to look at the models and see how they perform. And for these, it's sort of an analogous question, but a much more complicated situation where what's the use case and how are they used? And can we come up with a metric, not adopt the typical approach people are, are adopting where they'll have a general framework that can sort of describe everything, but come up with metrics, sometimes a posteriori or after the fact metrics that say when a given method is working and when it doesn't work. And as I said before, I mean, having a metric that fails sometimes is a great thing because it tells you where the domain of applicability of your theory starts to break down. And so there's a couple RL examples where we've thought about exactly that. Awesome. So Mike Mahoney, this has been a great conversation and looking forward to hearing more about the progress of some of these theoretical as well as uh, progress theoretical work as well as progress on the tooling front. Great, Ben. Great to have the chance to talk with you. So as a reminder, Mike Mahoney will be at the Artificial Intelligence Conference in London this coming October. You can follow what Mike and his collaborators are up to on Twitter at UCB Rice. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud, or Spotify, and never miss an episode.